0: Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. On today's episode, we'll go over the topic of adult syphilis from the infectious disease section on medbullets.com. Let's start this episode with a clinical snapshot. A 41 year old man presents to the clinic complaining of an intensely paritic rash over his torso, back, and arms, including his palms. He also describes being concerned about patchy hair loss on his scalp, as well as the presence of warty growths on his penis. His sexual history is notable for frequent sexual encounters with both male and female partners without the use of condoms. Physical exam is significant for a diffuse erythematous maculopapular rash, patchy alopecia on his scalp, wart-like white lesions on the base of his penis, and bilateral inguinal lymphadenopathy. VDRL and FTA-ABS were positive. Now let's get into the episode. As far as the classification of adult syphilis, it is caused by treponema pallidum, which is a spirochete. With respect to the epidemiology, as far as the demographics, syphilis is most common during the years of peak sexual activity. Most new cases occur in men and women aged 20 to 29 years of age. There have been a recent rise in syphilis cases among the men who have sex with men community. Keep in mind that co-infection of syphilis with HIV is high. The location is the genitourinary tract, and risk factors include unprotected sex as well as IV drug use and needle sharing. With respect to pathogenesis, as far as the mechanism, treponema pallidum rapidly penetrates intact mucous membranes or dermal abrasions and enters the lymphatics and blood to cause systemic infection. In terms of transmission, this is from intimate contact with infectious lesions, which are most common, blood transfusions, or transplacentally from an infected mother to the fetus. Associated conditions include cardiovascular syphilis, where you will have aneurysm formation, and neurosyphilis. In terms of prognosis, there is a favorable prognosis for patients diagnosed with either primary or secondary syphilis. But keep in mind that 20% of untreated patients with tertiary syphilis die of the disease. The prognosis for tertiary syphilis depends on the extent of scarring and tissue damage. With adequate treatment, 90% of patients with neurosyphilis have a favorable clinical recovery. In terms of the presentation of primary syphilis, this will typically present with a painless chancre, which will have an indurated edge, and you can visualize treponemes in the fluid from the chancre using dark field microscopy. Secondary syphilis will have disseminated disease, and will manifest with diffuse maculopapular rash that involves the palms and the soles. Know that lata are smooth, painless wart-like white lesions on the genitals. Secondary syphilis will also present with lymphadenopathy and patchy alopecia. Tertiary syphilis can present with gummas, which are chronic granulomas, aortitis from destruction of the vasovasorum, neurosyphilis, which will manifest with tabes dorsalis, and an Argyle-Robertson pupil, which is when the pupil constricts with accommodation but is not reactive to light. Other symptoms in tertiary syphilis can include broad-based ataxia, a positive Romberg sign, and stroke without hypertension. Finally, moving on to congenital syphilis, this condition can present with facial abnormalities, saber shins, and sensorineural deafness. Specific facial abnormalities include raggedies, which are linear scars at the angle of the mouth, nasal discharge, a saddle nose, notched Hutchinson teeth, mulberry molars, and a short maxilla. Now let's talk about some studies for syphilis. In terms of labs, nonspecific serologic testing includes VDRL, which is the Venereal Disease Research Laboratory, which can test in CSF with neurologic or otologic involvement of syphilis and another non-specific serologic test is RPR, or a rapid plasma reagent. Specific serologic testing includes FTA-ABS, which is fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption, which is used to confirm the diagnosis. Microscopy, specifically dark field microscopy, can be used to visualize motile spirochetes. The differential diagnosis for syphilis includes herpes simplex virus, which presents with painful genital vesicles and ulcers, Haemophilus ducreyi, which is a painful genital ulcer with exudate, lymphogranuloma venarium, which presents with bubose, and Klebsiella granulomatis, which will present with a beefy red ulcer that bleeds on contact. Treatment of syphilis is typically medical, and antibiotics include penicillin, doxycycline, and ceftriaxone. With respect to penicillin, intramuscular penicillin is used for primary or secondary syphilis and early latent syphilis. IV penicillin G is used for latent syphilis. If allergic to penicillin, patients should be desensitized. If the patient is pregnant and allergic to penicillin, the patient should be desensitized. These patients will have a high risk of stillbirth, neonatal death, and developmental delay. Doxycycline is an alternative for treating syphilis in penicillin-allergic patients. Ceftriaxone is an alternative for tertiary syphilis in penicillin-allergic patients. In terms of desensitization to penicillin, this can be attempted for tertiary syphilis, but is typically done in the intensive care setting under supervision of an allergy specialist. Finally let's talk about some complications. The important one to know is the gyrus-Herxheimer reaction which is a flu-like syndrome after starting treatment for syphilis. This is due to toxins released by the killed treponema pallidum and this will be managed with symptomatic treatment like NSAIDs and acetaminophen. Complications of tertiary syphilis include aortic insufficiency, tabes dorsalis, and general paresis. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 48-year-old man presents to his physician with sharp lower back and left lower extremity pain. He describes these painful episodes as sudden, severe, and lasting a few minutes. He denies any trauma to the lower back, lifting any heavy objects, but endorses episodes of urinary incontinence. He has fallen three times while walking in the dark and attributes it to not knowing where my feet are before landing on the floor. Neurological examination is notable for his pupils not reacting to light, but constricting to accommodation. His strength is normal, has diminished vibration and proprioception sensation, and has depressed ankle reflexes. He is unstable during Romberg testing. Which of the following is the most appropriate diagnostic study for this patient? And the choices are one, electromyogram, two, hemoglobin A1c, three, lumbar puncture, four, MRI of the spine, and five, vitamin B12 level. The correct answer to this question is three, lumbar puncture. So this patient's lancinating pain, sensory ataxia, that is a positive Romberg test and not knowing where his feet are in space, and an Argyle-Robertson pupil, which is a pupil that is reactive to accommodation but not to light, are consistent with tabes dorsalis, which is a form of late neurosyphilis. A lumbar puncture should be performed to test for treponema pallidum. Tabes dorsalis is a manifestation of late neurosyphilis such that patients develop the disease affecting the posterior columns of the spinal cord and dorsal roots. Tabes dorsalis typically develops years to decades after the infection with treponema pallidum. Classically, patients present with lancinating pain, affecting the limbs, back, or face, sensory ataxia, which manifests with loss of coordination, secondary to loss of sensory input, and pupillary abnormalities, classically with an Argyle-Robertson pupil. Again, Argyle-Robertson pupils are small and do not constrict to light, but do constrict to accommodation and convergence, that is when an object is placed close to the eyes. When there are neurological manifestations of syphilis, patients merit further evaluation with a lumbar puncture after serum studies for example, when fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption and the venereal disease research laboratory, or VDRL, are positive. In patients with neurosyphilis, the cerebrospinal fluid analysis demonstrates a lymphocytic pleocytosis, elevated protein, and a reactive CSF, VDRL. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, electromyogram, or EMG, is an electrodiagnostic study that evaluates the electrical activity of muscle fibers and is highly useful in evaluating peripheral neuropathies. Although this patient has sensory ataxia, an EMG would not elucidate the underlying cause of his constellation of symptoms. Answer two, hemoglobin A1c measures the amount of glycated hemoglobin and is used to determine if a patient has diabetes, which is defined as having a level of greater than or equal to 6.5%. Diabetic neuropathy can result in sensory ataxia. However, it would not explain his Argyle Robertson pupils. Answer four, MRI of the spine is used in evaluating the presence of a spinal cord stroke, a space-occupying lesion, for example, tumor or abscess, or spinal cord compression. Localized disease to the spine would not explain his Argyle Robertson pupils. Finally, answer 5, vitamin B12 level is used to evaluate vitamin B12 deficiency, which can result in reversible dementia and subacute combined degeneration, which is loss of proprioception and vibration sensation, paresthesia, ataxic gait, and brisk reflexes. Vitamin B12 deficiency would not explain his Argyle Robertson pupils. To leave you with a bullet summary, Tabes dorsalis presents with sensory ataxia, lancinating pain, and Arga Robertson pupils and should be evaluated with a lumbar puncture to test for treponema pallidum infection. And moving on to the final question, a 50-year-old man presents to the primary care clinic for a work physical. He does not complain of any symptoms. His medical problems are hypertension and diabetes. He takes metformin and lisinopril. He's allergic to penicillin. He does not smoke and drinks alcohol socially. He was recently diagnosed with cellulitis and is being treated with cephalexin and is day four into his treatment. The patient is a recent immigrant from Laos and has poor medical follow-up. He states that he had many male and female sexual partners when he was in his thirties and rarely used protection. The patient's temperature is 98.2 degrees Fahrenheit or 36.8 degrees Celsius, blood pressure is 118 over 76 millimeters of mercury, pulse is 84 per minute, and respirations are 18 per minute. On physical exam, a 2 out of 6 early decrescendo diastolic murmur is auscultated over the left lower sternal border. A transthoracic echocardiogram reveals dilation of the aortic root. A serum test for antibodies against aspirochete is reactive. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management of this patient? And the choices are 1, amoxicillin, 2, ceftriaxone, 3, intramuscular benzathine penicillin G, 4, intravenous crystalline penicillin G, and 5, vancomycin. The correct answer to this question is 2, ceftriaxone. So the presentation of aortic regurgitation that is an early decrescendo diastolic murmur and aortic root dilation in a patient with a history of risky sexual practices like unprotected sex with multiple prior partners and a positive treponemal antibody test for example FTA-ABS is indicative of cardiovascular syphilis which is a manifestation of tertiary syphilis. Treatment of tertiary syphilis in a penicillin allergic individual can be achieved with ceftriaxone. To quickly review, syphilis is a sexually transmitted infection with a natural history consisting of three stages. Primary syphilis is characterized by a painless genital chancre in the days to weeks after infection. Secondary syphilis involves more systemic symptoms, for example fever, malaise, and diffuse macular rash in the weeks to months after infection. When left untreated, syphilis infection can enter a latent phase and resurface as tertiary syphilis up to 30 years after the initial infection. Tertiary syphilis manifests as cardiovascular syphilis or gummitous syphilis, that is gummas or ulcers, appearing on the skin, bones, or viscera. Treatment for tertiary syphilis is intramuscular benzathine penicillin G once weekly for 3 weeks. In patients with a penicillin allergy, desensitization can be attempted by an allergy specialist, usually in the intensive care setting. Other options are treatments with ceftriaxone for 14 days or doxycycline for 28 days. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, amoxicillin can be used to treat Lyme carditis, which is caused by infection with the spirochete Borrelia burgdorferi. Lyme carditis usually manifests with atrioventricular block, myocarditis, or pericarditis and is transmitted by the ixoides tick. Aortic regurgitation would not be expected. Answer three, intramuscular benzathine penicillin G is the standard treatment for tertiary syphilis in patients without a penicillin allergy. It is contraindicated in this patient who is allergic to penicillin. Answer 4. Intravenous crystalline penicillin G is the treatment for neurosyphilis. Patients with early neurosyphilis present with meningitis, whereas those with late neurosyphilis present with tabes dorsalis and or general paresis. And finally, answer 5. Vancomycin is used in the treatment of infective endocarditis, which can cause aortic regurgitation. However, infective endocarditis would present as an acute, progressive infection with fever, chills, and weight loss with immunologic phenomena like glomerulonephritis, Osler nodes, and rot spots, and embolic phenomena, for example, Janeway lesions, mycotic aneurysm, and septic emboli. It would not cause a reactive treponemal antibody test. To leave you with the bullet summary, tertiary syphilis is characterized by cardiovascular and orgumatous manifestations, and treatment includes intramuscular benzathine penicillin G in patients without a penicillin allergy, and septriaxone as one option in patients with a penicillin allergy. That's all for this review about adult syphilis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on medbullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast so far, we'd appreciate your consideration in leaving us a 5-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.